Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. But I'm going to geek out a little bit on the program today. As I've tried to make it clear every now and then when the opportunity arises, I am a a bit of a history buff. And and in particular, in recent years, I've become a fond participant and student of Canadian history. And I think it might be uh, because I decided one day that I needed to know more about my own country and its foundations. And it may be because I had a bit of a contrarian impulse. And when everyone started trying to cancel Canada, I said, well, hang on, let's go the other way with it and start learning more about it. And when you study Canadian history, you actually learn a lot more than I think people tend to give Canada credit for about how instrumental it's been in a number of very key ways, such as uh, contributing to the global abolition of slavery. We can uh, thank Lord Simcoe for that and uh, contributing to the uh, unleashing of responsible government across the British Empire. All of these things that uh, Canadians might not realize, and we never would if we malign our history and our historic figures. And we're going to do next week a bit of a pre-Canada Day special in which we'll delve into some of these themes in a bit more detail. And uh, my guest today will be back for that panel discussion. So this is a a bit of an appetizer in that sense. But uh, there's a new book out through the Aristotle Foundation called The 1867 Product, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. It is edited by Mark Milkey and has a number of fantastic contributors in it, not the least of which is Mark himself, people like Bruce Party, who was on this show just a couple of days ago, David Millard Haskell, John Robson, Peter Sean Taylor, and I'm just naming a a few that jump out off the page. There are many more there, and I am pleased to have Mark Milkey with us here today. Mark, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. You know, it used to be that such a book, I think, would be utterly uncontroversial. In fact, it might even be the kind of, just based on the premise alone, the kind of, you know, standard government pamphlet that you get around uh, Canada Day when governments have a bit of extra room in their budget and say, you know, here's a celebration of Canada. But to do that now is subversive in in many ways. And And I'm wondering when that became the case. When did this argument that you're putting forward become not necessarily a controversial one, but a contentious one? Well, probably the last five years. But I think I think the core problem and the reason we decided to publish the 1867 Project with 20 great authors, or at least 19, I'll exclude me, but um, the 1867 Project with authors even from India. You know, we've got a fellow from Goa, India, an entrepreneur who wrote a chapter saying, Canada, stop canceling yourselves. Stop, stop attacking yourselves. Uh, from Gaurav Jaswal. I think the core problem, though, is that weirdly, people today look back and have a utopian view of history. They look to 1867 or 1920 or 1850 or 1950 and say history wasn't perfect, therefore we should cancel Canada in part or in whole. That's a bit like looking at an oak tree with a diseased limb and going, there's a diseased limb, let's cut down the entire tree. Why? The oak tree provides shelter. Canada as a civilization, as a country, has provided shelter to tens of millions of all sorts of people from around the world starting 20,000 years ago before Canada was a blip in anyone's imagination with the first settlers, right? The people we now call indigenous. 
and all the way to, you know, yesterday if someone arrives from Ukraine as a refugee. So Canada is, is a country that we should be proud of. It doesn't mean there haven't been flaws, but you don't take down the oak tree of Canada because of, you know, a mistake in 1867 or 1950 um, or, or prejudice back then. So I think there's a weird utopian approach to Canadian history these days where, again, people want to cancel the country. Some people do. Uh, if if they see an imperfection, and of course there are imperfections, we're human beings. To bring it into a current context, one of the the great challenges that I see on this issue, and it's one that you tackle in your uh, concluding chapter, I think it is, is the idea that to say there's a Canadian identity, to assert that there is an identity, let alone define what that is, becomes fraud. And you have people like Justin Trudeau, and I I would say a lot of modern progressives in this country uh, that really shy away from the idea of, of having an identity and of distinguishing that there are Canadian values and Canadian ideals. And I'm I wonder if you could just expound a bit on your thoughts on that. Sure. Any country that is not uh, you know, a result of, um, how can I put this, um, that is a conscious, uh, consciously created country, right? Uh, France in 1789, Canada in 1867, the Americans in 1776, where you, in essence, you start and say, okay, you know, we're going to create something here, uh, or at least uh, you know, make it official. Uh, this is... When you when you create a country like Canada, you actually need to unite unite around something, um, something positive. Hopefully, uh, if you don't do that, then you know you, you can be a country that's based in ethnicity. Some countries around the world still is. You have to be of a certain race. You have to be born there, that sort of thing. Um, but if you want to create a country that provides for free and uh, flourishing culture and for free and flourishing people, you have to unite around good ideas, and you have to be clear about what those ideas are. So um, I mean. To be more clear about this, I once wrote a, an article in the Globe and Mail, a column in the Globe and Mail several years back. I don't know if they would publish something like this today, where I said, listen, uh, I'm pro-immigration, but there's a difference between admitting someone who, say, is a 30-year-old physician from Islamabad who's female, who um, kind of gets the modern age, so to speak, versus maybe a 70-year-old from northwest Pakistan or northwest Afghanistan that thinks it's a sin for uh, girls to dance. Um, and there, that's actually been a problem in that part of the world. So you need, you need to unite around good ideas. And the case of Canada, the good ideas came from 19th century classic liberals um, who believed in um, treating individuals as individuals, right? And they believed, and this is why they abolished slavery, for example. They thought, you know, those who happen to have black skin color were every bit as equal uh, with whites. So... Um, we, we had uh, and have an idea culture in Canada, and it needs to be renewed. And it comes from classical liberalism in the case of the British. It even comes from the French and their idea of liberty. So that's what we need to unite around again. And to say that we don't have ideas or ideals in Canada, as the prime minister did in, in late 2015, is simply nonsensical. And in fact, it's a recipe, it's a recipe for disaster. Because if everyone can you know, have ideas that, in fact, are in opposition to each other, say, you know, poor treatment of women if you come from certain cultures, cultures uh, or views, well, that's not, uh, that's not going to do very well in Canada. That's not going to help Canadian women, for example. So we better have laudable ideas to unite around as a country. Yeah, and, and to return to the immigration context for a moment, I mean, in my experience, and it's anecdotal, but I, I think it would bear out if you did a larger statistical study, it's oftentimes immigrants to Canada that are the most 
uh, clear, I think, on what Canadian values are. Because, you know, if you're someone who lives in uh, some country that is not as developed, that doesn't have as much liberty, that uh, doesn't have women's rights, gay rights, whatever the case is, and you're looking to anywhere in the world that you want to uh, emigrate to, uh, you're picking Canada, if you pick Canada, because you distinctly see something in Canada and in Canadian values that you would like your life to be and that you would like to become your identity. And I find often it's the, uh, it's sort of the, the, the progressivist view in, in Canada that doesn't realize what immigrants to Canada see in Canada. Well, I've been told this again and again. And in fact, in the 1867 project, we have several chapters. I referenced one earlier by Gaurav Jaswell um, from Goa, India. I mean, the reason he wrote the chapter is because he sent his sons to Canada uh, to go to university here. They're still here. And uh, he discovered, though, that Canadians are, were starting to beat up on themselves. And so he wrote this chapter precisely to say, listen, Canada is a wonderful country. You should be proud of it. Um, you know, he's proud of being an Indian. Uh, he loves much, much about his home country. But he, he noticed this weird sort of attack on Canada and its history. Um, and he advises the opposite. Um, a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine, and I wrote a chapter in the, in the 1867 project about immigration and ideas and uh, Van Vicatula. And he, and, along with others, uh, point out in the book, look, uh, one of the reasons many immigrants come to Canada is to you know, come to a place with the rule of law, with hopefully a stable government, hopefully a lack of corruption. A good example of this, actually, is immigrants over the last 30 years, 40 years from Hong Kong. Uh, even before the regime in Beijing did what it's been doing now in the last couple of years to Hong Kong, there was always a fear that 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 uh, Hong Kong would lose its freedoms. Those freedoms are exactly why um, Hong Kongers protested against the crackdown by Beijing. It's exactly why there has been migration to Canada from Hong Kong and, in fact, China proper, because they value the rule of law. I was there 10 years ago, and business people and politicians um, and civil servants, almost to a person, said there were three things they valued. The rule of law, including the British legal code, capitalism, and the anti-corruption efforts in Hong Kong, dating from the 1970s. So they valued, in essence, the British colonial legacy. That's what they were telling me. Uh, imagine people saying that in Canada today. Well, a lot of immigrants come here precisely to escape a corrupt society. They want opportunity. They want the rule of law. So the last thing we should be doing is downplaying those. To talk about the history aspect here, I mean, one thing that I've always thought has been a tremendous flaw in any Western society is not knowing your history. And I, again, to go back to immigrants, people that have taken the Canadian citizenship test, I feel often would do better than most Canadians if they were to do the same test who have been born in Canada and are lifelong Canadians. Uh, but, but I also think that knowledge of history in and of itself is not the be-all and end-all. When you have this a belief that everything in history and everyone in history needs to be recast based on this impossible standard and, and based on these these modern litmus tests that that uh, are, are not realistic. And I, I think, you know, even James Daschuk, who I think his work clearing the plains really laid the groundwork for declaring Canada a perpetrator of genocide, was a lot more nuanced than the debate that followed that and, and then the policy that Daschuk's work influenced and, and so on. So we do seem to see this increasing, this decreasing nuance and this increasing hostility to Canadian history. And I'm wondering how you break that, because you, you can't educate your way out of this problem if people don't want to listen. And if people have already decided that John A. Macdonald and Egerton Ryerson and Wilfrid Laurier are all villains. Well, I, I think, again, the core problem is, you're right, it's not enough to have an understanding of history or to know your history. 
it's, it's a question of how you view it, I guess, and um, how you view a country. If you look back, uh, let me back up a moment. It, it's util a lot of people have utopian views these days about history. So in the 20th century, the utopian project, uh, one of them was Marxism, where at least they, you know, it was, it was dead wrong about everything from human behavior to economics and, and the like. Nonetheless, at least Marxists could argue they were looking ahead to create their perfect society, right? They, they could potentially create it in the future. That was their excuse. Um, but when you look into history and you expect history to be perfect, I mean, it's bizarre. Why would you? It's utopian. Uh, for, first of all, history's done. You can't rectify anything. By definition, history is done. But also, why would you think people in 1867 or now should be perfect? Um, you and I, Andrew, I mean, one day, 100 years from now, people will look at us and say, Andrew, Mark, how could you possibly believe X? I mean, they um, say that now about me, in fairness. But. <laughs> well, exactly. But they, you know... Uh, you know, we, none of us have an omniscient full view of, of everything that we do personally or, you know, in a society. Uh, what's the exact proper act? We do the best we can in most cases. So I think it's a flawed view again. The oak tree analogy is the best one I can come up with. If you look at a tree and you see a diseased limb, you don't take down the tree. We have people today that actually um, want to take down the oak tree that is Canada because before 1960, the diseased limb was we denied voting rights to uh, indigenous Canadians unless they gave up their status. Um, women didn't get the vote before 1920. But one of the reasons we, we published the 1867 project with these 20 authors and, and, and a good chunk of that in, in the book is uh, chapters on history about women, um, about indigenous peoples and the rest, is to say, listen, the point about history is in a liberal democracy anyway, you build on the sacrifices and successes of the past. You don't deny the wrong things that have happened in the past, but put yourself in 1920. Um, I mean, the automobile just got started. Canada is a rural country for the most part. It's, you know, most people are in, in rural areas. Uh, I mean, it's amazing actually that anyone in, you know, before the modern age, before a hundred years ago, before the development of uh, the automobile or anything else, was able to reform anything. I mean, think about the problem for suffragists in a, in a widely, you know, in a, in, a, in a country like Canada. I mean, the fact that they were able to get the vote, um, you know, where you just had newspapers and later on a little bit of radio, long before TV, long before the internet, and only when the automobile was starting. Think about how difficult it was to get reforms in, in uh, you know, before 100 years ago. When you think about what people, most people, what their lives were like. They were poor. They were in the middle of nowhere as farmers. Um, I, th I think actually we should appreciate how difficult it was to reform. But the key thing is this as well. Unlike, say, Joseph Stalin's, you know, Soviet Union or Lenin's Soviet Union or Chairman Mao's China, the ideas in the 19th century from classic liberals that, that today we might call small c conservative or libertarian, the worth of the individual, not treating people as a member of their collective or tribe, um, the rule of law, capitalism, you know, open markets. All of this was what set the groundwork for a more successful country over time. And in fact, admitting more people and giving more people rights because it became impossible given the logic of individual rights of classical liberalism, not to give women the vote, not to give indigenous peoples the vote. And so it was those ideas in the 19th century that they started, that we built upon, that others actually sacrificed to push forward. That's the way to think about history. It doesn't mean you ignore the bad stuff. It's like, we were not the Soviet Union. I mean, this is, this is a question I always get about, for example, Winston Churchill, you know, because he said a few things here or there. And it's like, listen, did Winston Churchill contribute to a free and flourishing world? Yes or no? And the answer is yes. 
The, the uh, original anti-fascist, you could say. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, Mahatma Gandhi. Do you know that Mahatma Gandhi praised Hitler in 1938, 1939, saying, I don't think you're, um, I can't remember the exact word, but the devil that people make you out to be. Um, of course, he was wrong, and he advised Jews to try and negotiate with the Nazis. Bad, bad advice. That doesn't mean, though, that Mahatma Gandhi was wrong to uh, work for Indian independence. The suffragists were eugenicists. It doesn't mean they were wrong to, to work for the vote for women. So if you look back in history and say, unless they have exactly my view today, we must abolish them, we must cancel them or somehow denigrate them. No, uh, if they contributed to a free and flourishing society, which would be the standard I suggest, then you can start to appreciate that at least in the case of the Anglosphere, we actually built on some very good ideas starting in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the, the way to view history, I think, more smartly. I'm curious, and I, I don't recall any chapters that dealt with this question, but, I, but I've always wondered about how Canada compares to other nations in this regard, because we had, just over two years ago, the uh, infamous uh, residential school unmarked grave announcement, which has triggered a, a lot of uh, very, very nasty debates in some cases, very tense debates. Now we have the government talking about potentially criminalizing what they call residential school denialism, but all of that we, we could have a, a full show on and, and probably should, but at the time, the Canadian flag on Parliament Hill was lowered to half-mast, where it remained for months without really uh, an end point in sight. And it was just one day Justin Trudeau decided, okay, it's, it's going up, and he gave some weird excuse for it. But you look at other countries in the world that have a lot more demonstrable evil in their history. Germany, which has, you know, less than three generations ago, the Holocaust, which has resulted in a profound level of national guilt. You have uh, the United States, which had uh, slavery in, until uh, later than the, the British Empire did. And, and you have uh, countries, I mean, just to use those two as an example, they do not embrace the self-flagellation that we saw in Canada starting a couple of years ago. And, I, and I'm wondering why that is. I mean, do you have any insights on how other countries have dealt with um, pretty clear-cut injustices and atrocities in their past? Well, there was, there was a great book that came out uh, some time ago now by Ian Baruma on the difference between Germany and Japan and how they dealt with their wartime records, right? And his basic conclusion was Germany did kind of finally acknowledge it and come to grips with it. Uh, he argued Japan never did um, agree or disagree with Baruma on that. Uh, the United States, I think you're seeing some of the same uh, attempts, though, in in the United States to, to denigrate uh, again, their own history. And uh, I mean, in comparison, yes, of course, Canada was ahead of the United States on abolishing slavery, for example. I mean, it was pretty much abolished in the 1790s here, or at least uh, new trade in slaves could not happen in Canada, um, thanks to Governor Simcoe. Uh, and by 1820, it was pretty much a non-issue in Canada, uh, long before the British Empire even abolished it in 1833. Um, but the other thing is this, a proper understanding of history should make us more modest about all of our ancestors. So let me be blunt. If you're indigenous in Canada, the British actually, the last place they fought slavery around the world almost was in British Columbia during the colonial period. Um, there, there's plenty of examples uh, and evidence that slavery was occurring in British Columbia uh, before and after uh, it became a province and joined Canada. So Governor James Douglas in the 1850s is battling slavery in British Columbia. It takes a much tougher line with uh, British colonialists uh, who engage in this. 
and with indigenous folk in, in British Columbia, he has to kind of uh, negotiate. Sometimes he buys a slave to free a slave from a First Nation. Um, but this went all the way, uh, you know, to the late 19th century. And so the reason I mention this is because um, you know, there's no perfectly good guys and bad guys in, in history for the most part. I mean, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin accepted. Um, you know, in most of human history, if we go back far enough in our own family tree or ancestral lineage and all of that, we will find plenty of um, evil. Um, you know, and, and so to look back and say, you know, my my ancestors were pure and yours were evil. And these days it's the colonialists who are evil and the indigenous are all good. That's actually really simplistic and naive. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Soviet dissident, um, once said this, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And what he meant by that is, is it's a mistake to say that person over there or or that group over there is the problem and I'm the good person and my my tribe is, uh, you know, pure. No, no, that misunderstands it. So uh, I think the great sin today is the great sin that we've always had in human history is that we don't treat people as individuals and we're back into the soup again with, you know, that where people are pronounced guilty based on their ancestral lineage or color. This is, this is bizarre. Um, in any case, in the 1867 project, Chris Champion does a great job in one of the chapters, the longest chapter in the 1867 project, of discussing the British colonial record in Canada and around the world. Were there warts in it? Of course. But also, this is the British Empire that abolished slavery, that outlawed um, bride burning in India, sati. So um, it's a mixed record, but that's the human race. One of the chapters that I, I found quite interesting, both for the substance of it, but also the, the meta aspects of it that I'll explain in a moment, was Lynn MacDonald, how a maker of Canada was framed, the unjust treatment of Egerton Ryerson. Now, obviously, I, I had a couple of weeks ago, uh, Anne Kavukian on the show, who's a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, and I sort of joked that you can't call it what it actually is or historically has been, which is Ryerson University now. This is where we saw this uh, statue tumble down, the school quick scurry and rename itself uh, just in the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I think Egerton Ryerson is, again, a figure that if you were to ask all the people who are pulling down the statue and spray painting around the grounds of the school uh, what he did, I don't know if a lot of people would know, because he's always been sort of one of the the B-list of the founding fathers, I think, you know, next to the McDonald's and the, the Cartiers. But he is one of the reasons we have public education in, in Ontario and by extension in Canada. So, again, when you talk about, you know, have you contributed to a free and flourishing society? Absolutely, he, he has. And the thing about it, though, that I found interesting in, in McDonald's account is that she is a, a former New Democrat member of Parliament. So she's coming at this from the political left. And, and often, certainly when we talk about cancel culture, it tends to be construed as a right versus left battle. And I, I'm curious if you think that Lynn McDonald is an outlier on the left, or if you think that there is actually a broader coalition around your thesis that extends on both sides politically. Well, I can only guess, but Lynn McDonald's chapter in the 1867 project, like Canada, should be cherished, not canceled. Her chapter in the book does a great job of explaining um, uh, Ryerson, right, and his history and how, frankly, he was he was close to and friends with and lived with the Ojibwe, for example, and they cherished him. And so, again, to take a simplistic view of history, that indigenous good, uh, colonialist bad, or vice versa, if you go back 50 years, right, to a John Wayne movie, which is simplistic in reverse. Um, you know, to, to take simplistic views of history is to really miss the full, you know, breadth and depth of human beings and their age and ours. 
Uh, it's hard to say, uh, you know, if the Canadian progressive left, as they like to think of themselves, you know, is also waking up to the problems of cancer culture. I think so. I mean, I can give you a story. I was on an airplane a couple of months ago with an Air Canada pilot who said his uh, very left wing aunt from Surrey, British Columbia, um, and all that, that would represent a teacher in British Columbia, uh, who often are very left wing and the propaganda they get from their teachers union is very left wing, was very concerned about what was being taught in the schools these days. And he shook his head. So even his left wing NDP voting uh, woke aunt, um, counterculture hippie aunt, uh, has some concerns about what's going on in the schools these days. I suspect most Canadians have a concern. And that's another reason we decided to, to write the 1867 project, me and 19 other authors, because it's important to think about Canadian history and build on these sacrifices and successes of past generations, instead of taking some simplistic utopian view uh, that frankly does a disservice to their sacrifice. You know, one of the problems, Andrew, actually, um, we talk about, um, you know, uh, people taking a kind of a, uh, you know, self-righteous approach to this these days or virtue signaling. You know what it actually is? It's virtue preening. We have people these days that look back and they see a horrible thing that happened. They think, oh, I would have changed that right away. Uh, as if they would have had the maybe courage to, you know, face up to the Nazis in 1935, a la Winston Churchill, or if they would have fought for suffrage, you know, decades before it happened. You know, most people are followers. And in fact, it is the generations that fought for suffrage, for the vote for indigenous Canadians. It is those who fought in World War II and before and sacrificed blood and treasure that contributed to the modern day Canada. And we should appreciate that. And today, though, you get people that look back and, and think they would have been at the, the front of the parade. I'm not so sure. And it's a form of moral preening. And they're immodest, actually, about themselves, because most people are followers. And so um, we should actually treasure and appreciate those in Canadian history that did push ahead the reforms. And that would be nice if we could do that, say, on July 1st uh, this year and every other year, instead of uh, letting the people who want to cancel Canada and Canada Day dominate the headlines. One of the interesting trends, or, or at least in dynamics of the trend we're talking about, is that it used to be you'd have people that weren't appreciated in their own time and would appreciate be appreciated later on. I mean, I, William Lyon Mackenzie is a, a great example of this. Here's a guy who uh, was, you know, a, a rebel, an outcast, was uh, at one point probably could have been executed if uh, there hadn't been a more favorable uh, treatment by the governor for the Upper Canada Rebellion, and then in later life becomes a, a member of parliament, and, and even later in life becomes one of Canada's heroes for uh, his contributions to the Canadian story. And, and I fear that now it's entirely reversed where, you know, there, there's a, you know, yes, you get to appreciate it a little bit later on in life, but then if you exist in memory longer than that, you, you start going the other way. And I, I don't know how much we were, we will be able to rebuild that. And, and I, I guess I'll, I'll ask you on, on that. Do you think that names that have been tarnished as part of this wave of revisionism can be untarnished? Or do you feel that once those sort of identities, these new identities are cemented, it's difficult to take them back or to add that needed nuance? Well, I think, I, I think, again, a, a deeper understanding of history um, shows that things, you know, can kind of go in cycles. And I think now we're in the cycle where a lot of the chattering classes, for whatever reason, and they're varied, everything from critical theory, which, you know, Bruce Party uh, talks about at the beginning of the 1867 project, to some utopian view of history, um, you know, to some dissatisfaction with the colonial era from those who, you know, didn't always benefit during it, um, you know, and some that did. Uh, for all those reasons, I think we're in this weird era where, again, yes, it's impossible to look at 
people in history as human beings with good and bad. Um, in, instead, we're, we're, you know, we're trying to wipe the slate, slate clean and start from year zero, or at least some people are. I, you know, look, I think it's possible to renew respect for, again, the sacrifices of, of past generations and understand what they were going through. But again, also to hopefully grasp onto the notion that the, the idea is that got us to where we are today, mostly a free and flourishing society. You know, if you compare Canada in 1920 to Lenin's Soviet Union, or Canada in 1960 when we gave indigenous people the vote, rightly, though late, to China, China under Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution. Uh, if you compare again, I think especially the Anglosphere, which glommed on to the ideas of liberty almost before anyone else in the world, and the reasons for that, I think that's possible to renew. And again, we better renew that because, as I point out at the end of the, the book, the 1867 Project, Canada uh, is now an agglomeration of people from all over the world, all sorts of identities. Uh, and you can't unite people around their ethnic identity. We don't have one ethnic identity anymore in Canada, if we ever did. What you need to unite around people are good ideas. And good ideas are the rights of the individual, not the collective. So, you know, and sub, you know, sub to that, you know, the rights of women, for example, or uh, on and on. So you want to unite people around good ideas and you better. Otherwise, you end up in a train wreck of colliding collectives. And actually, interestingly enough, and I, I write about this in the, in the 1867 project in the end chapter, Pierre Trudeau, of all people, got this unlike his son. Pierre Trudeau, and I quote him in, in the 1867 project, talks about how dangerous it is to prefer the collective over the individual. Now, he was a collectivist in terms of the economy. He believed government should have more powers. But, he, but there's a clear distinction in Trudeau's mind. He wants people to be treated as individuals equally before the law and in policy. It's why he, was, he hated ethno-separatists in Quebec, because he thought they were dangerous. They were collectives. And he says, look, collectives eventually collide, and you end up with, with civil strife and civil war. And so he emphasizes again and again the rights of the individual as an individual in law and policy. And he also says they precede the, the state, that you as an individual, your rights don't come from the state. You, you, in essence, you lend them to the state so they can get some things done, you know, tax us all for some common public good that can only be done through taxation, that sort of thing. But you lend your rights to the state. They don't come to you from the state. And that's an important distinction. And this is Pierre Trudeau talking. So I quote him at length in the 1867 project, precisely because he understood the value of the individual in a way that modern politicians and a lot of our chattering classes today don't. There are of the people who generally tend towards canceling Canadian history, I, I think two distinct types. There, there's one that's the, I'm going to go up and spray paint this statue and tear it down. And then there are others that say, no, 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 I, I don't want to erase history. I just want to move the statue to a museum. I want to take the name off this place so we can better contextualize. And I'm wondering where you think, just as we conclude here, we should land on celebrating and venerating Figures, Because, you know, you could argue that, look, if you're going to offer the context and say we've got to learn the bad and learn the good, that that doesn't necessarily mean we have to celebrate, which would, generally speaking, confer a, a certain endorsement to a figure. And, and that's one where I, I, we are continuing to see names being stripped off schools. In my city, there used to be a John A. McDonald school, and now that's been changed. But somehow we have like the Louise Arbor school named after some Supreme Court justice in Canada. Uh, so, so how should we deal with that question? Of, of celebration versus acknowledgement. Well, and often people, even when they move statues into a museum or talk about, again, you know, the British, say, or early Canadian founders, their contextualization is still very simplistic, right? That era bad, us good, 
right? Um, you know, very black and white. So again, I, I think the key question is, did they contribute to human freedom and flourishing? You know, Johnny McDonald wasn't perfect, but actually as, as Greg Piasatsky in the 1867 project in a chapter points out, look, this is, uh, this is a politician who early on actually provided famine relief over the objections of the liberals who wanted less. He set up the Northwest Mounted Police uh, precisely to protect the first settlers, uh, those who came across the Bering Strait or their ancestors 20,000 years ago from later settlers. Um, so Greg Piatsky, uh, Piasetsky in, in the book um, argues that, look, um, we need to rethink this. Um, look, I, I, think, I think we can appreciate, again, those in the past as a mixture of, of good and bad uh, and bad and good as opposed to demonizing them and not understanding uh, not only the limited choices they had, but more positively, again, in the Anglosphere at least, um, that a lot of the ideas that germinated in the 17th, 18th, 19th century of individual liberty and the rest, uh, we only were able to like, come a cropper with them you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, really, in Canada, because the, those ideas existed. But the 19th century held them. It's why they abolished slavery. It's why they worked towards suffrage for women. Um, it's why they refused in the Anglosphere, uh, you know, why Winston Churchill in World War II refused to allow the Americans to segregate troops in Great Britain, because they had this notion that the individual was worth something. We need to get back to that. And perhaps that's how we not judge history, but understand history. So I, I think, I think actually full context is necessary. I just don't think that, um, many of the woke folk these days are providing that very well. And so that's one of the reasons why we came up with the 1867 project. The uh, book, as uh, Mark has uh, so uh, made so so dedicatedly dedicatedly made sure to tell you, which you should definitely know, the eighteen sixty seven project. It is why Canada should be cherished, not cancelled. And I, I should say we've been focusing uh, because of my own uh, indulgence here on the history aspect, but there's a lot in terms of contemporary themes as well, uh, addressing tackling uh, critical theory, also systemic racism. Matt Lau has a, a great chapter on that, which I have to dig into again. So uh, it's a great book. And I would encourage you to read it. Mark is going to be back next week for a more uh, well-rounded discussion with some other voices on this as we lead into Canada Day. But this was great. Mark Milkey, uh, thanks so much for coming on today and great work on editing this through the Aristotle Foundation. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. And the book is available on Amazon. All right. Well, do check it out. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.